The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Boys have had a busy week. Welcome to the condos. Who the devil are you people? Shut up! Easy, Ralph. You bruise him, you don't get your bounty. All right, you know the drill. Fill in the yellow areas and they pay you at the gate. Now you look. I haven't done anything! Well, that's part of the problem, is it? Don't you worry, migrant. We're going to make you very productive. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, December 20th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to our show today. It's going to be an important discussion with Dr. Salim Mansur, Faculty of Social Science, Western University, who's in studio with us today. Welcome, Salim. Thank you. The topic is an important one for all Canadians and everybody in the Western world. It is the signing in Marrakesh, Morocco, on Monday, the 10th of December, of the United Nations Global Compact for Migration and its implications, and how it fits into other United Nations Um, documents, for example, Agenda 2030, which few people have heard about and have read, but we should make you familiar with the implications of these documents. So, Salim, the Compact for Migration was signed on Monday the 10th. What is the implication for Canada? Well, um, Robert, uh, to start off right off the bat, um, this uh, UN Global Compact for safe, orderly, and regular migration is part of the larger effort on the part of those who are pushing for global governance. This is one other document in a series of documents and programs and agreements and protocols that have been signed by governments around the world. There are a few states that are holdouts that haven't signed this, this particular one in Marrakesh, Morocco. Some very prominent states, though. Pardon? Some very prominent states have some refused to sign. Some very prominent states, some very important European states that went against the European Union's decision to be part of this whole movement. You've got the United States, Israel, Brazil, Australia. A lot Austria, of yeah. Bulgaria, Poland, Hungary, I believe Denmark, uh, Estonia. So there is a whole number of states that have not signed it, and uh, maybe other states will have second thoughts after having signed it, like Canada. We know that the leader of the opposition in Canada, Andrew Scheer, has indicated that if there is a conservative government elected next year, that they will unsign or revoke this agreement. So this is part of the effort to establish global governance, Uh, around the world and uh, dilute or take away the national sovereignty of the states. Uh, that's, That's what it is all about. The details are very interesting. There are 17 objectives, just as there are 17 objectives 
in the sustainable 2030 sustainable development program so um, the global compact for migration in that sense is part of the agenda 2030 agenda 2030 down. was signed in 2015 it's a 15-year plan right isn't it to um, for sustainable development so-called correct well, it is a global effort, again, to uh, establish uh, global governance and, and impose incrementally, in part or in whole, depending upon how the member states adopt the, these programs, that is going to be directed top-down on the member states. And that's what the Canadian government have signed on to it. Agenda 2030 followed... Uh, the uh, meeting in 2000 uh, in New York where the United Nations established the Millennium Development Goal and promised to expedite the program that has a history going all the way back to the immediate years after the end of Second World War, which is the Western governments led by the United States committed itself to provide for developmental assistance to the emerging third world countries in former European colonies in Asia, Africa, and South America. So we have a history of 70 years to think and ponder about against which to assess and examine and the motives and agenda that the United Nations is putting forward. Robert, you know, there is this argument, which is not new, which is an argument that dates back all the way to the beginning of the 20th century and then through World War I. That is, World Federation or international organization of some sort has to be constructed through which the world will have more and more unified plan in terms of building a cohesive and coherent understanding of world politics. And great powers will determine, in that sense, issues uh, that are of urgent demand for, for the whole world. So there came about, after World War I, the League of Nations. It was to, in a sense, uh, outlaw wars apart from everything else. Well, we know what happened. Twenty years later, there was a bigger war than World War One. It failed, World yes. The League of Nations failed. Well, it's guaranteed to fail because the very goal of outlawing war is a metaphysical impossibility, just as outlawing and getting rid of poverty is. And when there's disagreements, there's going to be a war. Uh, if it gets bad enough, there's no... Right, but yeah. but if you if you examine the agenda of the people who have been proponent of this, you know, they have been very powerful people and very influential people. Woodrow Wilson, in some sense, was the architect of League of Nations, just as there there were those European leaders who came out of World War One who were part and parcel of that effort. So the question is, just on the issue of yeah. war, the question is, how do you outlaw war or, or how do you lower the incidence of the sort of war that was World War I and then what was followed 20 years later by World War II? And the argument is, Bob, that you take away the powers of the states to make war in settling dispute. Wars happen because whatever is the basis of dispute between or among states cannot be resolved diplomatically 
and that eventually leads to war. Right. So the the remedy for that is that you take away from the state the power to engage in settling disputes or in raising disputes in a manner <laughs> that cannot be resolved that leads to war. And you do that by creating a supranational organization that is going to take away the rights of the state. Right, which has got to be another state. This, uh, the whole thing is a contradiction in terms from top to bottom. But it, sounds, just, uh, but it sounds actually quite nice, doesn't it? Well, it does. I, oh, have, yeah. I have in my hand the Charter of yeah. the United Nations, and right. just reading from the very first article, number one, item one, to maintain international peace. That sounds lovely, and I don't disagree with it. I think the leaders of the nations should get down in some sort of fashion to, to hash out their disagreements. But if you go on in the, uh, the Charter of the United Nations, number three is to achieve international cooperation in solving international problems of an economic, social, cultural, or humanitarian character, etc., etc. And this is where we get into documents like the Global Compact for Migration, Agenda 21, Agenda 30, the uh, Compacts on Population, and the meddling that this supranational body has become involved into the day-to-day politics and legislation of individual states. This is where the, the quagmire is, isn't it, Salim? Yes, it is. But we have to step back. And while we might justly critique what you have just now done about the issue of war and peace in the United Nations, and the war and peace issue is very germane to this discussion, by the way. It is not something, you know, that we're going on a tangent away from the primary discussion, which is the UN Global Compact on Migration and Agenda 2030. It is very primary because there is a lesson that has been taken from there for all of these things. And the lesson is that the fact of the matter is that after World War II, the League of Nations failed to prevent World War II. World War II happened. The lesson of why the League of Nations failed was then taken into the construction of World War II. And the critical point here is, if you look at the United Nations that came about in 1945 and that we have, the fact is that there has been no world war in the last 75 years. By world war, you mean wars among the major power that take the, the, the whole stage of that war is the globe. There has been no world war. And we can, we can talk about why that has not happened. You know, the development of nuclear weapons. I was going to say, yes. Precisely. We can talk about it. <laughs> we did, we already very, did on our show on, uh, yeah, on the war, but, but, on the Great but War. You, but you will be missing the central architect design of the United Nations that has been in more ways than we might want to give credit responsible for the long peace that we have had among the great powers. And that's the lesson that is being taken up. And that is the United Nations function on the issue of peace and security by global governance. And the global governance is delivered through the Security Council. Security Council has 15 members, but the only members that matter are what are called the permanent members with the veto power, that is the P5. They were the victors of World War II. United States, Britain, France, China, the former Soviet Union, now Russia, and China. China that was nationalist China that became communist China. Those are the five. They have a veto power. That means 
if anything that is of importance that is being discussed on the issue of war and peace that comes to the table that goes against the interests of any one member state, that is the, the P5 state, then that member can veto it. And by that, you know, freeze the discussion, freeze the diplomacy, there's no war. So just to remind you, the Vietnam War went on for 30 years almost, but there was no mistaken shootout between the United States and Soviet Union, you know. There has been warfare going on throughout this period, but these are minor skirmishes or minor powers in which the great powers interfere and make settlement, like the wars of the Middle East that has gone on, you know, between Arabs and Israelis. So there is global governance at the Security Council when it comes to peace and security issue. Mark, what have you done? Violence just leads to more violence. Yeah. I think I've done the wrong thing in becoming like them. This is how wars have started, men. We can't fight hate with hate. We're just not good at it. What's the answer? I don't know. I wish I did. I was taught to fight hate with love and understanding. What's good ours is two against one. <laughs> like being cold, boy. No insult intended, son. Anybody south of 50 seems like a kid to me. <coughs> I'm Harold. I'm Rembrandt. What is this place? Where have you been? Don't ask. For the Governor Schick's economic recovery plan. Economic recovery. I was dragged off the street by a bunch of thugs. Economic recovery facilitators. That's what we like to call them. They just call themselves stompers. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'd call them. This is Prop 286 passed. They've been kicking ass and taking names. Prop 286. You are out of it. Racial Repatriation Act. We just call it a roundup. Chicks preserving American jobs for American workers. You mean white workers? I'm not here because of my great tan. This chick sounds like a regular Hitler. Who? Adolf Hitler. World War II. I didn't see the film. Real life sci-fi enough for me. So what do they do with us now? Deported if we're lucky. Oh, great. Freaking great. So we've established, Salim, that there is a global governance with the United Nations, the P5 members, the Security Council, and the member states. So let's go from the Charter from 1945 to this governance to what we have today uh, with the Global Compact on Migration. How did we get from A to B? Well, it's a, it's a long journey, but what we have gotten to, we are now talking about 
the United Nations providing for developmental assistance to third world countries that became independent after 1945 as the colonial powers were defeated or they basically divested themselves of colonies such as Great Britain leaving India and, and that started the ball rolling. So in the last 70 years, we have seen um, nation states that have come into being right around the world with legally the capacity to govern within the national jurisdiction, the territorial boundaries of their state. But what we have also seen in these 70 years is in more ways than we can describe in the limited time that we have, also colossal failures of these states to provide for uh, what we might simply call good governance, that is governance that provides for uh, health, security, housing, education, that is the basic minimum that is expected uh, of governments or states to provide for a citizen uh, in the 20th century and now we are in the 21st century. Uh, during this period, or in the first half of this period, there was the great conflict between uh, the free world and the communist world, led by the Soviet Union on one side and the United States on the other side. This is known as the Cold War. This went on for almost half a century after the end of World War II. Part of this Cold War rivalry between two blocks of country was to win the hearts and minds of the people in the third world countries, that is, in the developing countries. The Soviet Union projected its values and its attraction for the developing countries through its ideology of Marxism, Leninism, planned economy, top-down approach to development, you know, of these societies, whether they are in Africa or in Asia or in South America. Now, that brought about the response from the Western powers, beginning with President Truman, uh, in the period immediately after World War II. Uh, first, it was a Marshall Plan that was given to the European countries to help those European countries build their economies after the devastation of the Second World War. And very quickly, the Marshall Plan succeeded because these were advanced countries that had been wrecked by the war, and they quickly came back on their feet. That is Germany, Germany that was divided, France, Italy. So that is the record of how developmental assistance provided to economies that were wrecked by the war recovered from the war and became, once again, part of the first world economies or advanced developed economies. But that model then was used by the Western powers, primarily by the United States and its allies. Uh, Canada was one of the leading allies. Uh, was used through its agencies, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the various agencies of the United Nations, like the United Nations Developmental Program or Development Program, UNCTA, the United Nations Conference for Trade and Development. These were used to provide money, that is basically money, developmental assistance to third world countries. Just as the Soviet Union was holding out its program of Marxist-Leninist ideology through planned economy, 
to help bring about rapid changes in these societies, bring them into the modern industrialized world. The Western governments came up with their program and said that we will provide you assistance to help build your economies that will lead you to have democracy and capitalist free market economy. And you're saying that this failed. And what I'm saying is now that we do an audit, which is what we have to do every time. We do audit of our books after a year of, you know, whatever we are running, you know, we do tax returns, so on, so after we do an audit. If we do a 70-year audit about this, the long and the short of it is there has been colossal failure. There hasn't been any development anywhere in any part of the world as a result of this top-down approach, whether the top-down approach was Marxism-Leninism or free market enterprise. In the case of the top-down approach on on the Marxist-Leninist side, you have the example of Cuba. Cuba is a completely failed state. On the side of the Western economies, providing funds and money, you have now all of Africa. You know, you can pick and choose any number of countries of Africa. These are failed economies. You know, we so we have a whole... There are success stories, but those success stories, uh, I will come back if we, can, we, if we go forward. They are independent of either the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, or the Western country. They did it on their own initiative. It's interesting whenever you talk to people about development and they hear development in the UN and what's the UN going to do to develop the world. You know what most people think about? Infrastructure, dams, um, plumbing, you know, just getting basic plumbing into a country, getting, uh, having running water, having electricity, things like that. But I think mostly what the UN's talking about in infrastructure is political infrastructure and that what they are their agenda is not has less to do with the physical infrastructure that's needed than with the with the political infrastructure. Like trying to impose democracy on right. Iraq. Well, like all the top-down stuff that Salim's talking. That's why it was a failure because it it's a because of the infrastructure that they're using. It's could a it failed. Could it be a cultural problem? For example, you're saying that the Marshall Plan worked on the Western nations of Europe because they were already had the culture of of democratic rule in many of them and capitalism in many of them. So it was easy for them to rebound under the Marshall Plan. But when you're talking about places like African countries, which have never seen and never had a tradition culturally or politically of democracy or, or freedom or individual freedom or rights and capitalism, it does not seem to be working there. No matter how much money you throw at these nations, they don't have the background to properly channel that money into uh, promoting a a freer country and a more productive country. Both of you have raised very important points, you know, Um, uh, development in terms of whether it was uh, the model was uh, former Soviet Union Marxist-Leninist model or capitalist model infrastructure, as you have pointed out, you know, irrigation, hydroelectric dams, roads, yeah, railroads. Nobody's opposed to that. Uh, so infrastructural development right. uh, where, where to be provided for, and, and those are necessary for a modern economy to work. I mean, it is the classic uh, definition, ironically, but was provided by Lenin, but it would be, you know, useful for any country uh, where he, he said that modernization or development means electrification. 
you know, so mm. so energies are quiet. And you, uh, uh, um, Bob, uh, uh, Robert, you ha- you have raised, uh, I think, the deepest philosophical question by your observation. Um, I point out to my students all the time, and in my writings, I pointed out that. Uh, when it comes to the question of uh, economic development or developmental assistance, there is now the whole discipline of developmental e- economics, you know, and, and that was part of my own studies, that uh, the singular most important issue that is ignored by both sides of the argument is that culture is upstream and politics and economics is downstream. You know, so if the culture has not evolved, if the culture has not changed, then you can build all the hydroelectric uh, dams and you can provide for all the railroads and build up a landing strip to take in, you know, big jumbo jets and and provide broadband uh, 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 IT, you know, Internet. Uh, You are not going to change the culture. The example is Saudi Arabia. (laughs) Middle East, Afghanistan, you know, many of these countries are now failed states. So where is the problem? I would say the problem is culture. And and the West, neither the West nor the Soviet Union know anything about culture. There is no magic key. The Western development in that broad sense of the term took place over several centuries. And first change came at the cultural level, mm. as the world, as the ideas of people change, as they saw the world differently, as they saw the world in a way that the old cosmology was no longer, in a sense, credible. That old cosmology, and that change came incrementally through trial and error, not because a group of people sat down in some sort of a United Nation of United Europe, you know, experts so-called, and said, you know, we have a plan and we're going to Im- follow this plan and impose it on uh, Britain, France, and so on and so forth. No, none of that happened. It happened from the ground up. And so we are back to that fundamental question that we're dealing with. And I'm going to come to back to the migration issue because that's the issue we have to focus on. But the fundamental question we are dealing with is does the United Nation or any such body sitting somewhere with expert have a top-down plan that can be effective, meaningful? You know, flying at 30,000 feet and looking at the world and saying, you know, we're going to do this, doesn't provide for an understanding of where the people are 30,000 feet below, what they're thinking, what their needs are. So the ambition now of the United Nations in Agenda 2030 with the Global Compact as part of it is not infrastructure to begin with. There are 17. The Agenda 2030 has 17 bullet points or 17 chapter headings. You know, the number one point is end poverty in all its form everywhere. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> so just as the League of Nations was, end wars, right? Uh, here we have it. End poverty in all its form everywhere. Item number two is end hunger achieve food security and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. 
Item number three is ensure healthy life and promote well-being for all at all ages. And I can run down. So we are not talking about the top items as infrastructure, building dams or airports. What we are talking about now is micromanagement at the ground level. We are not flying at 30,000 feet. We are going to enter at the ground level and we are going to micromanage it. That is, the people from the United Nations, the experts from the United Nations, like missionaries, will go out to Namibia, Zambia, Afghanistan, etc., and run those societies. So where we are, we're back again, ironically, from empire to nation to empire. Global governance is back again to empire. I'm not a fool, so please do not treat me as one. Well, we can't all be geniuses, can we? Missiles are only the first step to prove our power. Our power? With your disregard for human life, you must be working for the East. East, West, just points of the compass, each as stupid as the other. I'm a member of Spectre. Spectre? Spectre. Special executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, extortion. The four great cornerstones of power, headed by the greatest brains in the world. World domination, that same old dream. Our asylums are full of people who think they're Napoleon or God. Come in, nicest person in the history of the universe. Mark? Sir? I'm surprised. You usually greet me with some slur about my side. Oh, not anymore, oh wonderful being. I've learned that slurs can be harmful. Actually, I've sort of gotten used to your remarks. Oh, I'm glad to hear that, you porky pigness. <laughs> I just want to say then that... <laughs> your report, Mark. Yes, sir. This week, sir, a group of people taught me about a new emotion called hate. Wish they could make a contact lens for the mind so these people would see that when you mix all the different varieties of earthlings together, you get this incredible human rainbow that stems from the same source, and each person has his own pot of gold. Till next week, sir. Nanu, sayonara, shalom, dosbidonya, ciao, ding long salvi. All of us here on this wonderful little planet of saying, catch you later. <laughs> You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. And are freedom and capitalism on the agenda anywhere of any of these United Nations plans, Salim? Do they ever talk about freedom and capitalism except as something to be done away with? Like, I don't hear them saying we got to advance individual freedom. I don't hear them saying we have to advance capitalism. If they really want to develop the world, that's the only way to do it. And yet those are the two things I find the UN 100% against. Well, I mean, the moment, here, here, here is the paradox or the conundrum. The, the moment an agency 
engages in saying that we have a program that is going to plan your life and you have to adopt that plan, right. then by definition, your freedom is then it's constrained, gone. Right. you know, a bridge. Because freedom at the bottom is of the individual to live a life unconstrained by any higher authority. So, so the moment there is a planning, there is that much less of a freedom. The UN 2030 Agenda is not something new. The UN 2030 Agenda is simply the accumulation of all the previous arguments that have taken place in this area. And the f- issue that we are confronted with is why should we expect Agenda 2030 will have any positive result when all of the previous agendas have basically ended up in cumulative failures. I mean, when the, U, when the UN talks about the item number one is end poverty in all its form everywhere, Agenda 2030, the question immediately is, well, what has happened? You have tried all these various programs beginning from, you know, say in the Canadian case, with Lester Pearson's Partnership in Development which became part of the UN program. You've had that partnership and development in the 1960s. You had in 1970s and 80s the Brand Commission report. You had the OECD report. You had the Millennium Development Goal. You Now you have Agenda 2030. And in between, you've had all the various programs, and the poverty is still with us. So yes, all those, all those programs are poverty-creating programs, and until they get that through their thick heads, nothing will ever change. You cannot steal and rob Peter to pay Paul and expect both sides to benefit from that, that equation. That has never happened in humanity's history. We haven't even learned the simple Ten Commandments. For heaven's sake, this, I, I'm just totally disgusted by this whole UN thing. I, don't, I can't even believe we're going down this path. The, the, these make-believe, end poverty, end hunger, that's like two-year-olds running the country. Uh, it, it frightens me. That's what I see in, in, in Trudeau. Trudeau is like this this child who has never grown up, who has never matured, who doesn't understand human nature, who doesn't understand how countries work, how people work. It's unbelievable. We live in, a, in an age of irrationality, and to me all this is irrational. I think what you've done, Bob, is hit the nail on the head by singling out Trudeau's understanding of the world with the globalists' understanding of the world. Well, it's symbolic. It's a matter of cultural relativism. They, th- they think that all cultures are equal, that you can take somebody, uh, a, a tribe from Namibia, and you can plant them in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and expect them to adopt the, the ways of those people in Fredericton, New Brunswick. It doesn't work that way. You just cannot take mass migration from the global south into the global north and expect things to be just the way they are now and for them to adopt our ways. They're not going to. Well, just hold on. Both you, Robert, and Bob, including myself, we are very skeptical about this program. But we have to, in expressing our skepticism, in fact, in rejecting this you know, and I think three of us agreed that this is, you know, more destructive than constructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to understand where these people are coming from. Now, look, for the people 
who are pushing this agenda, they, and they're very powerful people. Uh, That's why they're called elites. They are, they are, they are the elites. They are either, as, as is Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, a G7 country, and there are others, you know, Chancellor Merkel, Emmanuel Macron, President of France, Chancellor of Germany, yeah, Theresa May, Prime Minister of Britain, very powerful people. Uh, and then there are individuals, whether it's Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, BBC, very influential, very powerful people. So there is a narrative. There is an agenda. There is, in a sense, a cosmology. And that cosmology, you may rail against it, but you have to first understand it. That cosmology is we are citizens of one planet. Whereas you, both of you, and I am included in this, we are arguing, no, we are not citizens of one planet. We are citizens of Canada. We are citizens of India. We are citizens of China. We are citizens of Japan, etc., etc., etc. Nation states. The great political history from 19th century into 20th century was a transition from empires to nation. I, I understand that point, but so now, that's not the point that I'm hitting. I, I'm saying that even if we were all already one wonderful, uh, cohesive, homogenous, one nation, you cannot do things like end poverty and end hunger, even if you're all within one homogenous nation. We see it, you know, even here in Canada, we haven't solved the hunger problem. We've still got the problem on our on the native reservations. We've got all sorts of social problems, and whenever they want to solve hunger, we always have more. Look at downtown London. I mean, homeless people are on, a, on a, an increase like we've never seen look, in this Western nation of ours. Look, that... that, that That's socialism, is, that, pure that, and pure. That, that is your response, but you're not taking it into account where these people are coming from. Yeah, they're all socialists. So, so, no, you no, said no, it yourself. Hold on. No, just hold on. The, 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 the more legitimate criticism is, what is the definition of hunger? On the basis of who are you going to define? It is 1,500 calorie, 2,000 calorie, 2,500 cal calorie. Three of us sitting around this table have different uh, um, 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 body mass, you know, different needs. Mm -hmm. You know, so who's going to, so the point is that you and I will agree, we are talking about individual, we are talking about cultures, local cultures, national states. The planners at the top, at the 30,000 level, they're setting up a number. They're setting up an agenda. They're talking about hunger. They're not, by the way, talking about famine. There have been famine, which is different, you know, from mm -hmm. hunger issue. Canada hasn't had any famine. Ethiopia, we saw the famines. We saw the famines in Africa. We saw the famines in other parts of Asia. India, for instance, hasn't had a famine since Second World War. In India, there was a famine. The last great famine in India was the Bengal famine during the war. Okay, so we have to then discuss what is famine, all right, as opposed to hunger. The point here is, coming back to where the Agenda 2030 and all similar arguments come down to is for them, and that's where Justin Trudeau comes in, is that we are citizens of one planet. When Justin Trudeau says 
Canada has no core identity. Canada is a post-national state. What he's basically saying, we Canadians are members of the planet. We have to take on the responsibility of the planet. You know, the more legitimate criticism is who gave you the mandate to speak for the planet. We elected you the prime minister of Canada. So where what is happening is... He just wants a seat on the Security Council. The global Council. governance is moving in a direction incrementally to persuade nation states to give up their national sovereignty. And it is the Western states that are involved in this. You, you're not having the Indian prime minister sign up and say, you know, we're going to give up national sovereignty. You don't have the Chinese communist leader signing up that we're going to give up national sovereignty as a Japanese. So this issue comes back to the Western powers. And the UN Global Compact for Migration is about the dilution or the dissolution or the weakening of the national boundaries of Western states to accommodate what is looming ahead, which is the immense migration from the global south. Why? Because the global south has failed to develop over the last 70 years. Why has that failed? It has failed because the United Nations agenda, as you, Bob, correctly point out, is an agenda that is going to predictably fail because you cannot do what the United Nations promises to do. You're making uh, me think of the non-binding so-called nature of this global compact and agenda 2030. And people are forgetting the fact that uh, countries like Saudi Arabia, let's take that country for example, are signing this global compact, but they have absolutely no intention of implementing it in their jurisdiction. Zero intention. However, you do have the Western nations and people like Justin Trudeau who have taken Agenda 2030, written in 2015, and then came out earlier this year in 2018 with a, a communique saying this is how Canada is going to implement all of the policy decisions that were agreed upon in, 20, in the 2030 agenda. They said that, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, the UN Agenda 2030 is Canada's agenda. And so you have willing bindingness here. When Canada says that we commit to these 17 propositions, that means that we intend to enact legislation to bind us to this commitment. Saudi Arabia has no honor. They may say, we commit to do, th to do these things, but they have absolutely no intention of doing it. And same with all of the African states, same with all of the other countries of the world who are not of the Western uh, tradition. It is only countries like in Western Europe, Canada, that are going to implement these things. So it's a very one-sided document and one-sided direction, as you say, from the global south to the global north. Yes, it is. And, 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 and Bob's point uh, a little while ago of robbing Peter to pay Paul is very apropos. Global developmental program initiated after World War II for the global south through World Bank, International Monetary Fund, and the United Nations, in effect, has been 
taking money from the middle class, or relatively middle class, in the global north or western countries and handing it to the rich in the global south, that is, the presidents and prime ministers and others, to deliver a program that is UN agenda. It is the reverse of Robin Hood. It is, it is taking money f- from the poor in the north, relatively speaking, uh, and giving it to the rich in the south. Haiti comes on, to on, mind. On, on, on the premise that this is going to lead to development. Brucey! Hey, look at my baby! It's mommy! Yeah, I can see that. Hi, mom. <laughs> hey. Yeah, hello, son. Hi, hey, 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 what is that? Some kind of Swedish half a handshake? Come on. There we go, there it's we go. Yep. Honey, it's exactly the way I imagined it. It's so pretty, it's so clean. Mom's been popping pills like they were Tic Tacs. It's been a long boat ride. How has the cruise been so far? Hmm. Expensive. I can tell you that much. France wasn't so bad if you can get past all the Frenchmen who think they own the joint. Son, what's with all the fancy gay nannies? <laughs> Actually, I think those are just well-dressed fathers on paternity leave. Well, there you go, honey. Just like I told you, nobody works in Sweden. Everybody lives off the government. That sounds fun. So when are you guys leaving? Is that a castle? Looks like a castle. Yeah, that's it. Tourism's good. There's a lot of foreigners here, uh, everywhere you look. You're Swedes, Dad. Swedes are, like, really easy to get to know. <laughs> Bird Swedes are really easy. All <laughs> 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 those blondes. Oh, one moment, Colina. There is one more thing. It concerns Louis and myself. Me? Mm-hmm. Would you two like to be alone? General de Gaulle has broadcast an important message to Frenchmen all over the world. He's ordered that we pass it on. What did he say? I wrote part of it down. We have reached a crisis in the fight to regain our precious homeland. I now call upon Frenchmen everywhere. Rally to the Tricolore. Come to England. And together, as free Frenchmen, we will liberate our homeland. France and I await you. Vive la France. Vive la liberté. Vive la France. Vive de Gaulle. Well, Charlie sure knows how to get people home. You are to England then, Marie? No, my work is here. I will stay. De Gaulle does not need women. It's a new kind of Frenchman. <laughs> Mon colonel? Yes, Louis? Mary stays. But I and Willebeau am going. Vive la Beau. Vive la France. Salim, what steps is Justin Trudeau and the Canadian government taking to implement the Compact for Migration? Well, the number one step is about educating the people 
to support the government's position. So propaganda. And that is propaganda, whether it was in uh, the communists in Moscow or whether it is now the globalists in uh, Ottawa or in Berlin or in Paris. So in the case of Justin Trudeau, um, we see uh, what is happening. This is right out of the global compact. The global compact says that the people have to be educated. And in that sense, the media has to be educated to the program, the Agenda 2030, to the case of migration, that they have to be sensitized to the needs of the migrant. The, the, the global agenda, the global compact speaks about in the document itself that this is a 360-degree vision of international migration to optimize benefits of migration, to optimize benefits of migration. Now, you have to educate the students about this. You have to educate the people about this, and you have to silence those who are skeptical or critical about this. So what does Justin Trudeau does? He hands out $595 million to buy out the Canadian media. That is, in effect, that the Canadian media is going to tell the story, spin the narrative that is consistent with the UN Global Agenda 2030 and will not be critical about UN Global Compact. And you can see that happening right now. Our mother corporation, CBC, has no critical discussion about this. Our newspapers, the Toronto Star, the Global Mail, including the National Post, have more or less gone silent on asking the difficult questions about this. So when the Global Compact says it has a 300-degree vision of international migration to optimize benefits of migration, the entire doc document is about migrants. It doesn't deal with the host country and what is the opinion, feeling, thinking, culture, custom, values of the country, the people, whether they are in for this, they have accepted it, or what are their thoughts about this. And so we can see now the resistance building up, the yellow jackets in, in France, the, the largest outbreak of mass demonstration in 50 years taking place. This is not only about global migration, by the way, Robert. It's about climate change, carbon tax, you know, Motion 103 in Canada, which is also in Europe, that is no critical discussion of Islam and Muslim, that if you engage in any critical discussion, ask the difficult question, what happened the other night in Strasbourg, Christmas market, you know, sh sh mass murder that took place, then you or whoever is engaged in that discussion can be defined as Islamo. In, in, engage in Islamophobia, and therefore you are an Islamophobe and liable to prosecution under hate speech law. Okay, so this is all part of global governance. There's another aspect that uh, has gone under the radar recently here in Canada. The StatsCan, the Census Bureau here in Canada, has said that they are going to take the private detailed banking information of its citizens to use. Now, if you look at the Global Compact for Migration, um, Objective 17H 
It reads, conduct household, labor force, and other surveys to collect information on the social economic integration of migrants or add standard migration modules to existing household surveys to improve national, regional, and international comparability. So, again, Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Government of Canada is implementing, is binding this nation to... Um, to the, the, the global compact, to the United Nations Marxist agenda, to this globalist agenda of a borderless world by imposing, not as you just said, uh, not only as you just said, buying out the media, restricting free speech, but also collecting the individual personal data of individuals as if we're just another cog in this globalist wheel. Correct. Correct, Robert. And, and there are far more far more impact that is coming down the uh, uh, tube uh, as we discuss this matter. For instance, the European Union has released a parallel document to the Global Compact for Migration. The European Union document is setting up a table of what is the optimal population for each of the European Union member states so that they all have to accommodate migration. For instance, in this document, the U European Union has calculated the maximum absorption capacity of each country. For example, Germany is estimated to have a capacity of 274 million people. The present population of Germany is around about 68 million, 70 million people. So it's going to be four times the absorption. Uh, it has a four times the absorption capacity of the existing population. So Germany can accommodate up to, according to the European Union, 274 million people. It would no See, longer be Germany. It would no longer be Germany. Germany will cease to exist as a polity once that happens. Uh, absolutely, because the German Chancellor Merkel said on the week when the world was commemorating or Europeans were commemorating, as were Canadians and Americans, the 100th anniversary of end of World War One, Angela Merkel said, this is all in the public domain, that it is time for nation states to hand over their sovereignty to international organization. So the European Union has laid down the table of the capacity. Germany, 274 million people. Sweden, 440 million people. Similarly, France. Similarly, England and so on and so forth. Canada, of course, has five time zones. And people in Canada, like people in the Monk Center, have been talking about Canada reaching 100 million as quickly as possible because that would be the optimum uh, 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 population that Canada needs, requires, so that Canada becomes a world actor. So Stephen Bannon, just, <laughs> so Steve Bannon just recently said uh, in, in England at the Cambridge Union, I believe it was, when he talked about global conspiracies, he said, listen, folks, it's not the Illuminati. It's not the Vatican. It's not all these conspiracy theories that you're talking about. It's right in your face. It's under your nose. And you just said it, Salim. It's in the public domain. It's explicit. Our leaders are saying, destroy the nation state, as Angela Merkel said. 
We have to give up our sovereignty. We have to move all of Southeast Asia and Africa up to Western Europe and 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 destroy those nations. And so we, we have signed on to the Paris Treaty. Look at the connection. The Paris Accord has direct connection to what is happening with Alberta's natural resource. We are being suffocated. Our natural resources is being, you know, suffocated that we cannot use that uh, because we are now signatories to the Paris Accord. Paris Accord is part of the Agenda 2030. So that's global governance. It is not our elected representatives in Ottawa, our national parliament, uh, making the decision for us as sovereign people. The decision is going to be made for us. And the people that we send to Ottawa are simply rubber stamps. Justin Trudeau is simply a, a rubber stamp for the decisions made in Geneva and New York. Well, maybe that's the question to end the show on because is the decision already made? If I'm looking at John Iveson's commentary of December 6th, he, 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 he writes, quote, the rebels Ezra Levant called the UN's global compact on migration dangerous, a done deal, cooked up by unelected bureaucrats with no regard for national sovereignty. And of course, he's concerned about their objective that his whole rebel media might be gone because he's critical of a lot of these things. Is it a done deal? Are we already, are we just talking through our hats now? Is that all we're doing? Because it sounds like it is. If this thing was signed already, and where's the, where, where is the resistance going to come from? It, it, it is a done deal in the sense that there is the globalist agenda, and Canadian government is signed on to it. That is the Liberal Party and the political, academic, media elite in Canada, along with the business elites, have signed on to this. The question is whether the people are going to be tied up hand and foot and taken into this compact, or the people are going to awaken and reassert their independence, their autonomy, and change the direction. Uh, That is to be seen. But what we can say right now, at this moment, uh, at the end of uh, 2018, that the people are restless. We are seeing that in Europe. The people are restless. It's been two years since uh, the people in the United Kingdom voted for Brexit. And the conservative government in UK has not delivered that issue. That means the people and their elected representative have a profound disconnect. The people elected Macron in France, uh, 50 years after 1968 uprising, uh, there is literally an uprising in which Macron is bringing in martial law down upon the French people. The last time it happened 50 years ago, Charles de Gaulle resigned and left. Uh, We are seeing that in Italy. Uh, The government in Italy that was elected by the people is going against the European Union agreement. The Hungarian government was elected thrice, back to back to back. Uh, The media elite calls the Hungarian government fascist and bigoted because it, it will not abide by the European Union agreement. So you can see that there is resistance mounting. Now, this is in the West. The resistance is not in the South. For the, for the South, it is the whole UN Global Compact is a way out of their collective failure of which the United Nations holds immense responsibility. Well, thank you, Salim. I'm 
hoping that, you know, we're all going in the wrong direction right now. Hopefully we'll see a change in direction. So be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be be reasonable. You don't care. Of course I do. Write me all about it in care of the free French London. I can order you to stay, Lebeau. With all due respect, sir, you are a colonel. The goal is a general. He's also taller. <laughs> don't you care anything about this place? Nothing. You seem to miss the whole idea of the war. We're fighting the Germans, not each other. <laughs>